came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 14th of September 2018. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. Today we are speaking with Professor Stephen Tingay who is the Executive Director of the Curtin Institute for Radio Astronomy and Deputy Executive Director of ICRA, the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. We'll be looking at his career and he'll be telling us about the Murchison Wide Field Array Project. And that's followed by Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrave, who is a University Toxicology and Pharmacology Lecturer, an amateur astronomer and astrophotographer, and he's going to tell us, what's up Doc? What's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks? And he takes us on an astronomical tangent. And we finish up with some Astrophys News highlights, featuring the latest discoveries in this golden age of astronomy and space science. So let's cross over a couple of time zones to Perth in Western Australia. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Brendan. Today we are speaking with John Curtin Distinguished Professor Stephen Tingay, who is the Deputy Executive Director of ICRA and leads the Curtin University node of ICRA. ICRA is the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research with over 100 staff and post-grad students. Whilst with ICRA, he was also the Director of the $50 million Murchison Wide Field Array, the MWA project, the fully operational precursor radio telescope for the Square Kilometre Array, which is already producing some astonishing science. He has authored or co-authored over 200 papers in international refereed journals and has attracted over $100 million of research funding as principal or co-investigator. So before you tell us about your involvement with the world's largest radio astronomy project, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Stephen, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place, and did you have dark skies in your backyard? Yes, I grew up in Bendigo in central Victoria, and I guess I got the astronomy bug at a very early age. My earliest memory of astronomy was my uncle giving me a book about the solar system and the universe, and um, by the end of finishing that book, I was well and truly hooked. So at about age six, I had a telescope, and from around about that point, the only path in life that I had was to become a professional astronomer. So yes, from Bendigo and around Bendigo in the 1970s, there were pretty nice dark skies, so I was able to get out and explore the universe from a, a very early age. Yes, there's a lovely dark sky over there near Bendigo. Now, please tell us a little bit about your school days and your early ambitions. And did those ambitions change? Well, my ambition from an early stage was to do astrophysics. I guess I was pretty interested in, in all manner of science. So I did a lot of amateur geology and fossil collecting as a kid and all sorts of different things. So I guess science in general deeply interested me, but it was really astrophysics that desperately caught my attention. So all of my schooling and um, all of my direction from a very early stage was concentrated on maths and science and then later on in physics and mathematics 
and eventually by the end of undergraduate, I was finally able to do some astrophysics and then went from there through the standard path of a, a PhD in astrophysics and then out into the research world. Fantastic. Let's look into that a bit. I see your first degree was at Melbourne University and there your BSc Honours Physics degree. And then that led to a move up to the ANU, the Australian National University in Canberra, for your doctorate in astronomy and astrophysics. Can you tell us about that journey up to Canberra and your doctorate? Well, I I guess from fairly early on, I recognised that ANU and Mount Stromlo was at that time, the, the premier place in the country to, to go and do astrophysics research. So that was on my radar from, from very early on. I went up to Mount Stromlo to do a summer vacation scholarship at the end of my second year of undergraduate in Melbourne, and that simply confirmed to me that that's where I wanted to do a PhD. So immediately following finishing undergraduate, my wife and I were married and we jumped in the car and uh, travelled up the highway to Canberra. And, yeah, that's where I got started with my PhD research. That is awesome. So after your studies at Melbourne and Canberra, you spent three years at JPL in Pasadena, then three years at CSIRO's Australian Telescope Compact Array at Narrabri, which is still going now. It's a beautiful site I'm visiting very soon, then back to Melbourne for five years at Swinburne University of Technology before heading over to West Australia. Now, there's so much material there, Stephen, but could you just tell us a little about your time at JPL and how that came about? Sure. Well, I I guess it's sort of the standard path, uh, particularly in Australia when you finish your PhD to go overseas and get some experience in different uh, environments and different organisations. I did my PhD at ANU with my primary supervisor was Dr David Jauncey, who was from CSIRO. And it's with Dave that I started working in radio astronomy, in particular a very long baseline interferometry, where you take an array of telescopes distributed around the country or indeed around the world and you connect them all together to synthesize a single very large radio telescope that has incredible resolution. So that's what I did my PhD on with Dave Jauncey. In those days, we were able to collect data from the telescopes in Australia, but we didn't have any facilities to do that signal combination. So we had to record all of our data at the telescopes, and we shipped the data to Pasadena, to Caltech, and JPL. So during the course of my PhD thesis, we did many, many observations and stored them all up. And then I'd jump on a plane, fly across the Pacific to California, get all the boxes of tapes, take them to the correlation facility down in the basement at Caltech and um, do the next stage of the data processing there. So that was how I got contact with the, the folks at JPL. They were part of this project. And I got to know them very well over my PhD. When I finished my PhD, they offered me a job at JPL. So I finished my PhD and headed over to California, Los Angeles, Pasadena, and spent three years working with the team there. Again, in very long baseline interferometry, but this time was a bit different. This was uh, using an array of telescopes on the ground in conjunction with a radio telescope that had been launched into Earth orbit via a Japanese mission. So that was a a very, very exciting time. Fantastic, and what a great base to launch a career from. Now, let's go over to West Australia now, where you led the Murchison Widefield Array Project, a $50 million low-frequency radio telescope in the remote Murchison region, through the design, prototype, construction and operations phases. We've all seen some of those beautiful spider antenna arrays. Can you paint a picture of how you went about getting those antenna designed and implemented? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, a long and complicated story, but I'll, I'll try and boil it down. Thanks. Going back sort of a decade, the MWA project was underway, but it was struggling for funding. It was struggling for direction 
and I was asked to come in and try and pull it all together. So it was a, a process of stitching together the engineering design, the definition of the scientific goals for the project, pulling together the financing and the project management, and putting all that together, hiring a team, and basically starting from scratch, establishing that facility out in the Murchison, which at that point was a site that had very little or no infrastructure. So we were really growing it from the ground up, and it was definitely a bootstrapping operation whereby you get some money, you build a bit, you get some more money, yep. demonstrate a bit more. And around about 2010, we got to the point where we were able to prototype and demonstrate a significant fraction of the capability that we wanted from the instrument. And at that point, we were able to then attract the full amount of money to implement the construction phase of the project. So from that point, we really accelerated. And by about 2011, we were ready to go. We built the instrument in 2012 and went through a commissioning phase in early 2013 and finally launched the instrument for full operations in the middle of 2013. So that's just over five years ago now. The telescope has been an amazing success. It remains still the only fully functional precursor telescope for the SKA, although the South African precursor Meerkat is not very far away from full operations at this point. The MWA project is, as you say, a $50 million construction project, but it's a very complicated project. We have six countries involved, 21 research organisations. The overall project is led by Curtin University but there have been contributions from most of those partners over a long period of time. So it's been sort of complicated at a project management level. It's been complicated at a technical level, but the facility is now operated for five years. We've collected in excess of 20 petabytes of data, which is an extraordinary amount of data. And we have a team of hundreds of scientists from all around the world working through those data and publishing many, many, many science results. So we're now over 100 refereed publications in the literature from our MWA data over the course of the last five years. So it's been an incredible project and in particular, incredible bank for buck. And some great science coming out of it and some great science communication getting the public online with those multicolour pictures of the universe. It's just sensational now. The MWA is also necessarily installed in one of the most remote and quietest radio zones on Earth with practically zero RF interference. Can you tell us how you've worked with the local Indigenous peoples to acknowledge, to build and show respect for their traditions, their land and their country? Yeah, absolutely. I should first point out that the site on which we have built the MWA is a piece of land which is established as the observatory, the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory, and that observatory is is owned and operated by CSIRO. Yep. So the MWA has been established at the MRO in partnership with CSIRO. So if you like, CSIRO is the landlord and the MWA is the tenant. But the land on which the, the MRO is established is the traditional land of the Wadjuri Yamaji people, who are the traditional owners and custodians of that land. And so through a legal process, a native title has been issued for that land to the Wadjuri Yamaji, yep. and therefore CSIRO and us and the SKA will all operate at that location under what's called a, an Indigenous land use agreement. So we have a, a great relationship with the Indigenous communities around the area and we do many, many things in partnership. One of the things that I've done over the last decade is to be working with the Indigenous artists of the region and we've had a project called Ilgarajiri, which in the Wadjuri Yamaji language means things belonging to the sky. Yep. So the astronomers and the Indigenous artists get together. We camp out in the Murchison overnight. We look at the stars together, look at the constellations, 
and we share our stories about the night sky. That ranges from the traditional Indigenous perspectives on on the sky and its meaning, also the the Western mythology of the Greek and the Romans, but also the, the astrophysical interpretation of the sky and what we're doing with the radio telescopes in the Murchison. So it's been an amazing project that's brought us all much, much closer together and has actually resulted in the Indigenous artists producing a series of amazing exhibitions of the art telling both the traditional Indigenous stories but also works of art inspired by the telescopes and the astrophysical interpretation of the sky. Those exhibitions have travelled around the world. So that's been one of the things that, that I've been involved with over the last decade that's been an absolute privilege for me to work on and I think really has brought us all a lot closer together. That is so wonderful. That description just sent a chill and a shiver down my back there, Stephen. That's wonderful. Now, in November last year, we spoke with Dr. Phil Edwards from the CSIRO. He's Australia's SKA project scientist, who I imagine you know quite well, and he gave our listeners an introduction to the SKA. Can you tell us the latest international developments for the SKA project? Yes, Phil's a very good mate of mine and we go back a long way. In fact, I think the very first observing session that I did as a PhD student just outside Coonabarabran in New South Wales was with Phil. So Phil and I go back uh, <laughs> a very long time and we worked on VLBI together and we actually worked on, on that Japanese Space VLBI mission together as well when Phil was based in Japan. So, yep, Phil's a great guy. Where are we up to with the SKA? Yep. We're coming into an interesting phase. We're going into a, a series of what's called critical design reviews, and that's where we uh, review each element of the technical system of the SKA uh, in isolation and verify that requirements, the design methodology and the d design itself are uh, fit for purpose to, to carry into the next stage. So it's quite a busy time technically being in the sort of final stages of that design process. By about the middle of next year, all of that will be complete and we, then we'll carry those technical results into what we call a system CDR, which is where all of the elements are stitched together into a, a system, into a full description of the telescopes that will be built in South Africa and in Western Australia. That process will take some amount of time. We hope to be finished that by the end of 2019, may spill into 2020. But once that process is complete, the goal is to formulate the construction proposal, which will be a fully designed, fully costed, proposal to build the SKA. That proposal will be submitted to the SKA Observatory Council. The council is made up of the member countries, member governments, and they will decide who's putting what amount of money in and how that proposal proceeds into construction. So that's, that's the technical path. There's a bit of work to establish the SKA Observatory. It will be an international treaty level organisation, a bit like CERN or a bit like uh, ESO, the European Southern Observatory. Yep. So at the moment, the convention documents to establish the observatory have been finalised. They've been approved by the negotiating teams from all of the countries. Um, and those documents then go for ministerial level signature and approval in each of the 12 countries. Once those signatures are obtained, there's a, a process in each country to ratify the convention. And when a minimum of five countries have ratified the convention, then the observatory organisation can come into being. And when they come into being, the first thing we hope that they'll do is receive the construction proposal, approve it, provide the finances, and then we can crack on and start building it. So exciting. 
Okay. Now, can you give us a quick update on the Australian MWA facilities you've developed along with your huge team of research scientists, engineers and technicians? Also, you've got a whole building screened out there at the MWO. Would you like to tell us about that? Yeah, well, I guess it's worth backing up a little bit given the context of what we've described with the the SKA and just explain the role of the the MWA as a a precursor to the SKA. So you'll you'll gather from what I've just described that construction for the SKA is still a couple of years away and the construction period will take several years in itself. So we don't want to be waiting around until the SKA is completed. We need to get started learning how to deal with large data sets understanding the technologies that go into the SKA, the antennas, the signal processing, the calibration. And we also want to get a start on understanding the scientific goals. So that's why we build things like the MWA, the precursor telescopes, so that we're not trying to take a a massive step from where we are now to the SKA. We take a step to the precursors and then we take an additional step to get to the SKA. So it's all about building that knowledge, building that wisdom, building that understanding of this very new type of radio telescope. Thanks, Stephen. Now, you've been an active contributor to the International SKA project for the last decade or more, and you recently spent a year and a half seconded in Italy to lead the Italian SKA program. Can you tell us about that move and the work you did in Italy, and did you enjoy the Italian language and culture? Yeah, I was very fortunate to have the, the opportunity to head over to Italy for a period of about 18 months. They wanted someone to lead their SKA project into the next phase, and they approached me, and I was lucky enough that Curtin University were happy enough for me to disappear for one and a half years. So I took the opportunity, and yeah, we moved over to Italy. We lived in Bologna. I was head of the, the SKA project in Italy, and I was also director of the Institute of Radio Astronomy, which is based in Bologna. So, yeah, it was a rather amazing experience. Obviously, fantastic living in Italy, just incredible living in Europe. I mean, compared to Perth, Perth is a great place, but if you jump on a plane and fly three hours, you get to Adelaide, which is which is all very nice, but... If you jump on a plane in Bologna and and travel three hours, you can access many of the great cities of the world across Europe. So it's a very different scale of living, very different type of experience to living in Perth. So we we greatly enjoyed that. And the work itself, working on the SKA project, was, was fantastic. The Italians have a great history in radio astronomy and uh, they have many great scientists, many great researchers. Italy and a lot of Europe has a very, very solid educational system, so you get very high-quality people out. And they also have great engineers as well. So putting it all together, Italy was a very nice experience. I got a great insight into how uh, radio astronomy and science in general works in Italy at the government level as well as at the, uh, the working researcher level and also got a great insight into how science works across Europe, which is very different to how it works in Australia. And I, th- I think it was great to be able to bring those lessons home. So it was great to go and be there, but it was also great to come back to Perth. <laughs> Excellent. And we certainly have a lot to thank Marconi for. So now the SKA is one of the largest scientific endeavours in history. It's more than astronomy. Can you tell us about the scope of a project and the place of industry in the development and the operations of the SKA? and why so many countries are coming on board, and what the SKA represents for Australia, and particularly West Australia? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and there's a lot to answer there. So the first point you made about industry is a, is a really critical point, that the scale of the SKA and its complexity goes well beyond anything that radio astronomers and the traditional radio astronomy institutes have built in the past. Yep. So a fundamental enabler to get the SKA built 
is to have industry involved, industries that understand deeply the sort of engineering and technology that we're trying to use, uh, but also industry that involves efficient uh, mass production. So, for example, in Australia, we will have a, an SKA telescope that eventually has up to a million individual antennas scattered over many tens of kilometres diameter region. Yep. So it's very, very large-scale manufacturer. It's high-volume electronics, and it's also got to be robust, reliable. It's got to be able to exist in the environment of the Murchison, and it's got to be something that can be operated with a, a high level of availability and resilience. So these are all very sort of strict requirements on, on the SKA, and really the only place to go for that is industry. So we work a lot with industry. For example, in the MWA project, we've made a, a really fundamental point within the project of working with industry in preference to developing things ourselves. Yep. So we've brought in small to medium enterprise businesses from around Perth and around Western Australia, in particular from around the Midwest region of Western Australia, around Geraldton. But we've also engaged some of the world's biggest companies, IBM, Cisco, and others, to get involved with the computing, with the electronics. And so this has been in preparation for getting industry involved in the SKA. So that's a very deep point. And from that, quite a few things flow. For example, the translation of fundamental research into an industry and commercial setting. So we do quite a lot of work with companies translating our knowledge out of fundamental radio astronomy and physics into developing new devices and new products with industry. So this concept of the technology spin-out. So we're not only trying to understand how the universe works, we're trying to translate some of that knowledge out into industry, out into the commercial sector, so that they can grow their businesses, so they can employ more people, so they can make a profit, pay more tax, and generally grow the economy. So there's a very strong element of that, and that's reflected in the willingness of the state government and the federal government to support this project. It's quite a visionary science project, but it's also something that's going to very deeply stimulate the economy. And all of the countries around the world involved in the SKA project have more or less the same attitude. Yep. Yes, it's about science and yes, it's about discovery, but it's also about stimulating technology sectors, industry and commercial enterprises. That is sensational, Stephen. Now, one of the themes we've talked about many times on this show is the issue of big data. The SKA will be generating, as you mentioned earlier, petabytes of data on a regular basis, and a lot of that data will be necessarily discarded, I believe. The famous Lorimer FRB was found in archival parks data. Are there plans to archive SKA data, and would we or should we if we could? Yeah, so the data rates out of the SKA are enormous. So the data rate out of the SKA in the Murchison will be, I think, about 8 terabits per second which is quite a large number. Those data will come down to Perth via a dedicated optical fibre network, and those data will have to be processed in something like real time, so processed at the rate of around about 8 terabits per second. That is a mind-boggling challenge. So you cannot archive 8 terabits per second for very long before you run out of storage, yep. even in the most optimistic future. So what will happen is that the data will get processed, it will get reduced in size in the form of images and calibration data, and it's those data that will be archived. Yep. Even in that scenario, we're looking at archiving of order an exabyte of data per year or something like that, which is a just phenomenal amount of data, a thousand petabytes per year, just in the image data. Those are the data that the astronomers will then have to dig into, which will involve even more processing and even more analysis. So 
necessarily you have to throw out some information along the way. That's just unavoidable at the moment. But this is exactly how the Large Hadron Collider works. It produces vast, vast volumes of data. And at the moment, still, only a small fraction of those data are ever kept and recorded. The plan is that as time goes on, as storage gets cheaper, as compute gets more powerful and cheaper, we can throw away less and less information out of that process. But this is going to be a decade-by-decade journey. We, we expect this system to evolve over the next 30 to 50 years. So we're building the SKA, the raw instrument, to be able to support that 50-year future. And as the compute on the back end evolves, we'll be able to do more and more over the course of that 50 years. Excellent. Now, before we move back to some more personal topics, in terms of big science, we can confidently predict that the SKA will make some unexpected discoveries and raise some exciting new questions. But right now, what are some of the big questions that you hope that will be answered by the SKA? Well, there are a lot of them, but I guess the headline science, the highest impact, most interesting science for the facility that will be built in Australia is the exploration of what we call the epoch of reionization. Yep. This is a period in the early universe, over the course of the first billion years of the universe's life, after the Big Bang, the first stars and galaxies formed out of the gas and the dark matter that was produced from the, from the Big Bang. And as those stars and galaxies formed, they transformed the environment around them. The neutral gas that pervaded the universe was ionised. The electrons and the protons were split apart by the ionising radiation produced by these stars and galaxies uh, as they were born. So we're able to use the SKA to look back through time, to look into that initial billion years of the history of the universe and understand how the first stars and galaxies came about. This is absolutely fundamental because it's the evolution of those initial stars and galaxies that resulted in the stars and galaxies that are around us today, including our sun, and it's from that planetary system that indeed we came about. So in effect, what we're doing is looking into the initial conditions of our origins, how the first stars and galaxies were formed, what the conditions were like in in the early universe, that first billion years, attempting to join the dots from the Big Bang to the epoch of reionization to the universe that we live in today. So to me, that's the most fundamental science goal that the SKA has for us. There are obviously many, many others. Those observations to reveal the epoch of reionization are incredibly challenging. The signals that we're looking for are just infinitesimally small and confused against the foreground of our galaxy and all the other galaxies in the universe. So it's it's like an onion. We've got to peel back many layers of complexity to uncover this needle in the haystack, which is the epoch of reionization signal. So that's a very, very big goal. That's Nobel Prize winning stuff if and when we get there. So very exciting. And indeed, this is one of the areas where we're taking the first steps with the MWA. So we're making thousands of hours of observations with the MWA, attempting to make the first steps towards the epoch of reionization. Fantastic. And it's great to see that your science research is also being reflected in the outreach that goes hand in hand with it these days. Can you tell us about some of the outreach work that ICRA employs to engage with the public and to encourage that next generation of scientists, of mathematicians and astronomers? Yeah, absolutely. It's an incredibly critical part of the process for us, and it's a part of the process that that I hold personally very, very important. So it's great to do all these things, build 
magnificent telescopes, explore the universe, uncover the, the laws of physics. That That's all fantastic. But at the end of the day, there's not much point unless we can tell people about it and explain it in terms that are relevant, interesting, truthful, and and engaging and have, have impact in a way that excites the community about it, excites kids to look at science and technology, career paths, engineering, computing, etc. So that's an incredibly critical part of the process for us, and therefore it's it's something that we spend a lot of time and creative effort on. People love astronomy, and so for us it's a pretty easy sell. Everyone stood outside, looked at the night sky, and wondered what it's all about. How do I fit into this universe? So the entry point for us is quite quite easy and gives us the opportunity to talk about a very wide range of things in outreach, everything from the astrophysics to the engineering to the computing, even the project management and the sort of sociological and political aspects of running a mega science project like the SKA. It's highly multifaceted. It's also very visual. So earlier you mentioned the multicolour images of the, the sky that the NWA has produced. That sort of thing just blows people's minds and is an immediate hook to talk about many, many other things. So we do press releases, we do interviews with journalists, we sponsor awards, we take the telescopes out at night time and show the public. We run seminars and workshops and invited speakers. Once a year, we do something called AstroFest, which is held at Curtin University, gets the entire astronomy community of Western Australia involved, and we have four or 5,000 people, members of the public, every year coming to Curtin and being involved in, in AstroFest and interacting with astronomers, hearing about the latest results, looking through telescopes. So we will try every single angle that we can to engage not just the public, but educators, politicians, bureaucrats, anyone who will listen. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it's the public and the taxpayer that are providing the resources that we're using to explore the universe. So it's absolutely critical that we go back to the public, tell them what we're doing, make sure they understand that their money is going to a good use, not just for astrophysics, but with broader benefits to society. Fantastic. And I just saw some of the great things that were happening at Curtin for your Open Day celebrations. There were some lovely things happening over there and inspiring more and more students to get stuck into it. Now, the microphone is all yours, Stephen, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges we face in science, in funding, in education, in equity or outreach, our quest for knowledge or space. The mic's all yours. Okay, well, I have to think for a second. I guess over time, what I've seen as a challenge, not just in astronomy and astrophysics, but in science more general, is a diminished understanding of its importance. So we all enjoy the, the products of physics and, and technology, mobile phones, electronics, all sorts of things that, that make our lives easier. But very few people sort of have that understanding of where it all comes from. At the level of if we didn't have quantum mechanics 100 years ago, well, we wouldn't have mobile phones today. Yep. So this concept that there's fundamental research, that, that there is this cycle, and it's a classic cycle. In astronomy, you think about the development of telescopes that allow us to make observations that uncover the laws of physics. And those laws of physics are the things that allow us to produce technology at the level of commercialization that brings down the cost such that you can then have technology like CCDs being developed 
and then those being built into the next generation of telescope, yep. which then goes and uncovers even deeper laws of physics, which then feeds back into new technology. So it's a, it's a mind-blowing cycle, and it's not something that can be supported with a few years of funding and a few years of effort. The, the cycles I've just described unfold over decades or even centuries. When you think back to the late 1800s, the early 1900s, and that whole revolution in our understanding of physics, special relativity, quantum mechanics, and think about the technology path that has been based on those sorts of discoveries, it, it's decades and decades long. It's a century until you get to the other end of the cycle. So I, I guess it's not quite a rant. It's something that I would like much more strongly recognised is that you have to support all of the different phases of that cycle. So it's pointless having lots of support for industry and commercialisation if you're not feeding that with the support for the absolute blue sky fundamental research. Yep. Yep. So that's, I think that's a challenge for all of us. Whoops, Skype has just dropped out on us. I'll call Stephen back on my mobile phone and see if we can just finish off. Hello, Stephen. Hi. So right now we warmly invite our listeners to follow at stingay and at Ikra and at MWA Telescope on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you so much, Professor Stephen Tingay, on behalf of our listeners. It's been fabulous speaking with you. It's an absolute pleasure, Brendan. Thanks very much for putting the time into helping us get our message out. It's a really critical part of the whole process, as I talked about earlier. So thanks very much for your efforts. A real pleasure and great listening to your story. It's a fabulous journey and one that's going to go on for many years. Okay, thanks very much for your time, right, Stephen. Thanks, no worries. Bye. Cheers. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be talking with you again. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky for the next two weeks? Um, lots of interesting things. After having the moon being absent from our skies for a while, it returns. And in the next fortnight, we'll see the moon climb the ladder of planets and stars and give you some really interesting things to have a look at. We've also got a visitor, which I'll talk about a little bit later, in the form of a binocular comet, which is going to pass by some very interesting objects. But let's start with the planets first off. If you're looking to the west, once again, you'll see in the western sky, not long after sunset and, and until well after full dark has fallen, the bright white star that is, <laughs> that is actually a planet, Venus. Now, uh, last week we saw Venus come close to and then be, be very close to and draw away from the bright star speaker. This week sees it drawing further away from speaker and heading towards Jupiter. Yep. Unfortunately, in this apparition, neither Jupiter nor Venus come exceptionally close. But as the weeks go on, you'll see Jupiter and Venus very near to each other in the sky. They never get closer than about a hand span, but even so, the sight of the two of them, one above the other, in the evening sky will look very, very good. And of course, as I said, the moon will be joining us this week. And so on September the 12th and 13th, the crescent moon will be close to Saturn, making it for a very nice view and also a nice chance for astrophotography. And also a good chance to try and see Venus in the daylight if you're going to try. Yep. Also, if you happen to be somewhere around a, a nice still body of water, the reflection of Venus and the crescent moon in the water will look absolutely stunning. Also, with uh, Venus coming closer to Jupiter, you might, if you've got the right body of water, you might be able to catch Venus, uh, Jupiter and the moon all together. 
So that's something to have a look out for, even if you're not taking photographs. If you're walking around somewhere near a large body of water in the late evening, you may wish to position yourself so you can see both Venus and its reflection. In fact, Venus is so bright that uh, you'll be able to see the ladder of Venus in the water. That is, the reflection of Venus in the water, if you've got a little bit of a ripple, you'll see Venus not as a simple bright dot, but as a line in, in, in the water very nice. And again, once uh, the moon's joined it, you'll have some rather spectacular uh, reflections to be seen if you have a chance to see uh, Venus and the moon and water together. That sounds well, great, Ian. Well, now that I've said this, it will immediately cloud over and I'll have no chance to see, uh, see Venus and the Moon at all in the coming days. But Jupiter is next up on the 14th. The, uh, the crescent moon is not far from Jupiter. Even potentially, if you've got some nice wide binoculars, you can get uh, the edge of the Moon and Jupiter together. So that will uh, look very nice indeed. Again, with reflective surfaces, you should be able to see Jupiter and the Moon reflected in a still body of water, which will look rather nice. If you can potentially get them just as twilight's beginning to fade away and you've still got a little bit of colour in the sky reflected in the water, you might have to play around with it a bit. That could be a potentially very beautiful photograph. Even if you're not photographing things, that would be absolutely beautiful to watch. I like to emphasise, even though we see some amazing photographs coming from spacecraft and big telescopes, even these simple things, the planets at twilight reflected in the water, are such amazing, powerful images that and you can see them yourself without any particularly important equipment. So it's a lovely thing to see. And then the moon then continues on, passing by the bright star Antares. And then on the 17th, it's close to Saturn. Saturn is a little bit indistinguishable because of all the bright stars around it, but uh, you'll be able to tell quite easily which star-like object Saturn is because it's the brightest thing uh, next to the moon on the 17th. And then the moon still waxing heads towards Mars, and then on the 20th you'll see Mars and the the waxing moon close together, which will uh, look rather nice indeed. So there what, what you can expect in the evening. Venus is now looking at a side of crescent shape in small telescopes, and that's uh, going to be really nice. It's not as uh, big a crescent as the crescent moon is uh, when we see Venus and the moon together, but it's uh, definitely no longer a half-moon shape, but uh, edging on towards a more crescent shape. So from now on, try and look at Venus in the telescope as often as you can, and you'll see it uh, getting bigger and becoming thinner and thinner and thinner. On the 23rd, Venus is going to be at its brightest. Its magnitude will be at a uh, eye-watering minus 4.8. I mean, that's nothing compared to the brightness of the moon or the sun, but it's astonishingly bright for a heavenly object, brighter than almost any of the ISS or iridium flare passes. So it'll be incredibly bright and, and get ready for people reporting UFOs, flares, crashing aircraft, and a whole range of other things because... About once every four years, we see Venus this bright. It's actually once every two years, but not many people are up in the early morning looking at Venus when it's in its morning apparition. So people tend to forget in between the the apparitions of Venus in the evening how bright it was previously. And so it'll uh, be brilliant and very definitely crescent-shaped on the 23rd. After that, Venus will start getting dimmer because the... Even though Venus is will be getting bigger, it's also there's less and less of Venus will be illuminated. But as I said, if you're following Venus from now on, you should be able to see it be getting bigger and thinner, and ultimately you'll have this spectacular wire thin uh, crescent, which unfortunately will be very close to the the uh, horizon. But for the next uh, next fortnight and some fortnights after, Venus is going to be in a very good position to observe uh, and be very comfortable to observe. And also coming up around the 23rd, the day or so beforehand, we've got the equinox happening here. And for us in the Southern Hemisphere, we'll be saying farewell to winter. We will indeed. So at this time, the night and day will be approximately equal lengths. And we say farewell to winter, but we also say farewell to relatively stable nighttime skies and long 
periods of darkness. So even though it's now we can now enter out into the uh, evening without wearing 42 layers of uh, polar fleeces and hoping we're not going to freeze to death, it becomes uh, a lot warmer and more pleasant. But the sky is less transparent, uh, more turbulent, and we have a narrow window to see things. So it swings and roundabouts. And also, in Australia, you're probably going to start being eaten alive by mosquitoes unless you're <laughs> out in the middle of the desert. <laughs> so you know, you've, got to t- you've got to take the good with the bad. They're not freezing to death versus eating alive by mosquitoes. Yeah. <laughs> now, Ian, can you tell us about Comet 21P? Comet 21P is a perennial visitor to our skies. And this year, uh, it's making a reasonable approach. Uh, it's not going to get uh, up to unaided eye visibility. Um, and it looks like it's peaked at about magnitude 7 from the reports I've been seeing. So it's... Uh, it's a, a very a good binocular object and also a relatively good telescope object. If you've been seeing some of the people are around on the internet saying this is a glowing green comet, the, the green glow is very difficult to detect with the unaided eye. The green glow comes from the gases in its tail and it's a, a very carbon monoxide, a heavy comet. So we're seeing um, recombination. It's not from the carbon monoxide itself so much as the dicarbon that comes from, from the breakdown of ethane in the comet's atmosphere. So it's looking very good in binoculars, quite nice in a small telescope. Currently, it's quite close to the bright star Capella. For those of us, in, of, of those of our listeners who are in the northern hemisphere, this is very high in the late morning sky, and so a very uh, visible landmark. Uh, in Australia, you know, Capella is, is just above the horizon at astronomical twilight in the dawn. So we don't get a good view of it for some time. But for your northern, northern hemisphere visitors, the comet moves past Capella, across the top of Gemini, into Monseros, the constellation of the Unicorn, and you'll see some very interesting um, uh, meetings. So the very first uh, one that is uh, good for binoculars and telescopes is on the 15th, where the comet is very close to the open cluster M35. This will be a very nice target for both binoculars and um, small telescopes. And then um, on the 25th, which is a little bit after um, our next uh, talk, it'll be in the heart of the Cone Nebula, which will be an excellent astrophotography target, but will also look very nice in binoculars under uh, under uh, dark skies. The comet's going to be tra- travelling through the path of the Milky Way for a lot of its time. On the 10th, it's also going past M37. Uh, again, perfectly good in binoculars. It's supposedly uh, a reasonably bright cluster, but it's, it's a little bit um, sparse. So get your binoculars out and find that green comet. Indeed. Green comet, go. <laughs> Very good. Now, Ian, do you have a tangent for us for this week? I have a tangent for us, and it's vaguely related to comets, but more related to asteroids. What would you say are the two most important forces on asteroids and comets? Uh, Gravity. Gravity is really important. And maybe, I'm taking a guess here, pressure from the sun. Pressure from the sun is very important too. Gravity is the major one. Yep. Solar pressure is uh, also important. Comets also outgassing because yep. comets are uh, spraying uh, gases out into the uh, into the void. Uh, they act as little mini jets pushing the, the comet around, and these can have significant effects uh, on the uh, trajectory of the comet. Uh, now, for asteroids, this uh, they don't have uh, any significant outgassing most of the time, although one or two have uh, shown activity. Although these may be uh, these may be actual comets themselves, but for asteroids, there's another unlikely, but it, it turns out to be uh, quite uh, important effect, and that is the Yarkovsky effect. Now, the Yarkovsky effect is an effect on the, rot- of the rotation and uh, movement of an asteroid by heat. Oh, yeah. and it's quite literally the the um, uh, infrared photons released by the asteroid uh, after it's been heated up by the sun can affect its orbit. Now, as you can guess, 
this isn't very big. And it really affects objects that are really quite small. Objects that are around about 10 uh, centimetres to 10 kilometres in, in diameter. Yep. And so there's a, a the number of, of objects where we've uh, really picked up the Arkovsky effect is relatively small, but enough to remind us that when we're uh, putting together orbits for, for objects, that uh, while gravity is the most important, even something as simple as how an asteroid is heating can affect its orbit. Now, why is this important? Because quite recently a group of amateurs have managed to pick up the largest Yarkovsky effect ever described. This is an asteroid picked up uh, by our friends Daniel Bamberger and co. It was uh, it's a small asteroid. It's a, what they call an atom-type one that comes into uh, close to the sun. Yep. And with the uh, eponymous name of 1998 SD9. And so they had some reasonably good observations from a, from a previous encounter. But when they looked at it from where they expected to be, it wasn't there. And so they investigated a bit more and found that it was quite a fair bit out of position. It turns out that its lack of adherence to a pure Keplerian orbit was due to the Arkovsky effect. And so it's actually a bit bigger than the cutoff point that I talked about, which was about 10 metres. It's around about 40 metres or so. But it, has a, it also has a very close approach to Earth and the entire point of looking for this was it was going to have a close approach to Earth and they were doing uh, astrometry to uh, feed into the um, radar observations of this asteroid. But it also comes very close to the Sun. It turns out because it comes very close to the Sun, it, this gives it a very large Yarkovsky effect, larger than the other uh, asteroids which we have a decent uh, measurement of the Yarkovsky effect. And so, uh, again, this was something that picked up by amateur astronomers the biggest one we've ever seen, and it plays into our understanding of the solar system, again, showing how amateur observations play an important role in understanding of the, uh, the solar system and how <laughs> even things we think we understand really well can surprise us uh, sometimes. That's fantastic, Ian. So big congratulations to Daniel Bamberger and Guy Wells at the North Holt Branch Observatory. They're doing some amazing work there. They are indeed. Fantastic, Ian. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's been great speaking with you again. It's been great speaking, and uh, hopefully we'll have some really good things to see in the sky. I hope uh, people uh, have some uh, luck with 21P and, uh, and Venus and the Moon, and uh, we'll talk again in a fortnight. Okay, take care. Thanks, Ian. See you, mate. Cheers. Bye. And here's our news roundup for Friday the 14th of September 2018. Both our news roundup stories in this episode come from the Breakthrough Initiative. First, from BreakthroughInitiatives.org. Artificial intelligence helps Breakthrough Listen find new fast radio bursts. Machine learning algorithms applied to listen data from the Green Bank Telescope find new pulses from the mysterious repeating source FRB 121102. San Francisco, September 10, 2018. Breakthrough Listen. The astronomical program Searching for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe has applied machine learning techniques to detect 72 new fast radio bursts, FRBs, emanating from repeater FRB 121102. As we have reported in quite a few previous episodes, fast radio bursts, or FRBs, are bright pulses of radio emission, just milliseconds in duration, thought to originate from distant galaxies. Most FRBs have been witnessed during just a single outburst. In contrast, FRB 121102 is the only one to date known to emit repeated bursts, including 21 detected during breakthrough listen observations made in 2017 with the Green Bank Telescope, the GBT, in West Virginia. The source and mechanism of FRBs are still mysterious. Previous studies have shown that the bursts from 121102 are emanating from a galaxy 3 billion light-years from Earth, 
but the nature of the object emitting them is still unknown. Theories range from highly magnetised neutron stars blasted by gas streams near to a supermassive black hole, to suggestions that the burst properties are consistent with signatures of technology developed by an advanced civilization. <laughs> About 12 months ago, in search of a deeper understanding of this intriguing object, the Listen Science team at the University of California Berkeley SETI Research Center observed FRB 121102 for five hours on August 26, 2017, using the Breakthrough Listen Digital Instrumentation, a GBT. Combing through 400 terabytes of data, they reported in a paper led by Berkeley SETI postdoctoral researcher Vishal Gadja, recently accepted for publication in the Astrophysical Journal, a total of 21 bursts. All were seen within one hour, suggesting that the source alternates between periods of quiescence and frenzied activity. Now UC Berkeley PhD student Jerry Zhang and collaborators have developed a new powerful machine learning algorithm and re-analyzed the 2017 GBT dataset, finding an additional 72 bursts that were not detected originally. Zhang's team used some of the same techniques that internet technology companies use to optimize search results and classify images. They trained an algorithm known as Convolutional Neural Network to recognize bursts found with the classical search method used by Gajar and collaborators, but then set it loose on the 400 terabyte dataset to find bursts that the classical approach missed. The results have helped put new constraints on the periodicity of the pulses from FRB 121102, suggesting that the pulses are not received with a regular pattern. At least the period of that pattern is longer than about 10 milliseconds, just as the patterns of pulses from pulsars have helped astronomers constrain computer models of the extreme physical conditions in such objects. The new measurements of FRBs will help figure out what powers these enigmatic sources. The work is only the beginning of using these powerful methods to find radio transients, said Jerry Zhang. We hope our success may inspire other serious endeavours in applying machine learning to radio astronomy. Our second report is from the BBC. Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, physics star, gives away £2.3 million breakthrough prize. One of the UK's leading female astronomers is to donate her £2.3 million winnings from a major science prize she was awarded. The sum will go to fund women, underrepresented ethnic minority and refugee students to become physics researchers. Professor Dame Jocelyn Bell-Burnell has been awarded a breakthrough prize for the discovery of radio pulsars. This was also the subject of the Physics Nobel in 1974, but her male collaborators received the award. The Breakthrough Award also recognises her scientific leadership and inspiration. Professor Bell Burnell believes that underrepresented groups who will benefit from the donation will bring new ideas to the field. I don't want or need the money myself, and it seemed to me that this was perhaps the best use I could put to it, she told BBC News. Professor Balburnell's story has been both an inspiration and motivation for many female scientists. As a research student, when pulsars were discovered, she was not included in the Nobel Prize citation, despite having been the first to observe and analyse the astronomical objects, a type of neutron star that emits a beam of radiation. She now says she wants to use her prize money to counter what she describes as the unconscious bias that she believes still occurs in physics research jobs. Fresh Perspective
The former president of the Institute of Physics believes that it was because she was from a minority group herself that she had the fresh ideas required to make her discovery as a young student at Cambridge University more than 50 years ago. I found pulsars because I was a minority person and feeling a bit overawed at Cambridge. I was both female, but also from the northwest of the country, and I think everybody else around me was southern English, she said. So I have this hunch that minority folk bring a fresh angle on things, and that is often a very productive thing in general. A lot of breakthroughs come from left field. Now, as a footnote, here's a great perspective from an electronics engineer building the MWA. She's on Twitter as at Murchison Susie. We'll have truly achieved equality when, on receiving a huge reward for a lifetime of hard work and dedication, a female researcher announces that she's going to buy a Ferrari rather than give the money away to a worthy cause. We'll see you in two weeks. Right now, why?